Welcome, this is the Skycast 2, episode 2, I guess you could say, which is basically my podcast, kind of going over things, you know, day-to-day and all that, and little cool events and things that I have going on. So uh, this one's going to be a little bit different. As you can see, I've got my new backdrop, which I'm going to be using for video reviews, so when I get things like headsets or physical products, maybe even gameplay videos, we might throw this in a little bit. I don't know, but it's a cool backdrop for that. I do have a couple of shells kind of set up, so I'm going to maybe uh, go over those and talk about them a bit. Uh, but the main chunk of what I wanted to go over today was I have a number of cool interviews to showcase. So with my site Gamer Headquarters, which is GamerHeadquarters.com, if you want to check it out and support what I do, uh, I get some really cool interview opportunities, and I wanted to share some of them that I've been kind of working on this year, because I think i got some really great ones going on. So the first is going to be a new, uh, basically for the new RuneScape update, which is archaeology that adds a new skill to the game. So I got to talk with uh, two of the main kind of developers behind that release, because that I think that's out now at this point. So, uh, you know, keep that in mind when we are listening to the interviews when they were shot. And uh, the quality of them might be a bit uh, hit or miss due to how they're captured and how they're presented because you kind of just take it when you get these interviews in regards to setting them up and coordinating them. So after the RuneScape one, I do have two more interviews. Uh, these are based on Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. The first is with the special effects uh, supervisor who basically did the puppets for uh, the Rise of Skywalker, and a number of the other, well, all the Disney-era Star Wars films, essentially. So that's really cool. And then following that, we got the stunts coordinator on The Rise of Skywalker. And I think there's some cool little things in there, so I hope you do uh, kind of enjoy those, because it, it's really interesting, I think kind of a big pull for me to get that kind of opportunity. And I think this kind of podcast style is a good way to sort of show off what I've been collecting in regards to interviews, because I do have the audio and everything like that. So hopefully we're all good to go uh, in that regard and kind of show those off, which is really cool. But first, uh, back to the backdrops, I just want to show off the shelving, and then we'll get to the interviews, so you can maybe skip ahead if you're more interested in that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Kind of set up a little bit of me. I'm going to swap some things in or out uh, when I'm doing this stuff, because if it's like a, a Minecraft video, I want to maybe add some more Minecraft things. I do have a whole Minecraft shelf, which I'll show in a sec. So coordination-wise, my traditional shelf that I use is like straight ahead. I've got a, like a, some of that became a Minecraft shelf to my left, and then behind me is primary shelf, which is against this wall. Usually, you know, we didn't have the space because I moved it for Connect and stuff, but we don't really use Connect anymore. It's not a big deal. So on uh, this side, and hopefully it's all, I think it's all framed quite well, in my opinion. At least for this moment to showcase it, I might go a little bit lower in the future and stuff like that for framing when I'm doing reviews. But uh, we'll see how this kind of goes. And of course, uh, give me your thoughts. And I mean, you might just be listening to audio, so I'll try to describe things a little bit too, because this is, you know, a bit of a podcast. So on this part of the shelf, uh, I consider this my tech one. And then we go to kind of like drinks and uh, containers and then figures. And this is a little bit of my halo section. And then there's an opening spot kind of here that I'm hoping to place, uh, you know, quick things when I'm doing something. So I've got that spot empty. And then the top, a little bit of stuffed animals, uh, Link, of course, and then a little Ghostbusters thing. So we'll start just kind of describing where I got things, because I thought this would be uh, a bit of a, a neat sort of story thing to go over, because most of the stuff has, you know, I've gotten it to do something or to review and everything like that. So on the far side, we've got the i9. I mean, if you have one of those, you want to show it off. It's got a sick case, space age. It's like blue. I'm going to get uh, my grandfather, after this whole virus situation's over, uh, to put like LED strips in. It's going to light up. It's going to be so cool. 
And then we've got a controller back, which actually has the site uh, logo on it, which is pretty cool. So that's part of my uh, evil shift from evil controllers. Great people. Uh, Hitman 2 Rubber Ducky, which I got from Hitman 2 at E3 a couple years back. A little Master Chief guy, I think, comes with the Cortana one there. Uh, PUBG helmet I got from the fine folks at Xbox Canada. Same with the mug, but the mug was for Sea of Thieves. I got a really cool uh, painting, or not painting, but a picture of me, which I might share on the post, because I guess we've never done that before. That's a good idea. Uh, so they have these cool artwork things done. And I wish I had that on my hand, but it's on the shelf over there, so I can't really show it right now. Uh, that's the Bethesda. I went to PAX. So they were doing smoothies that you could get for, uh, I think it's Wolfenstein 2. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, Sunset Overcharge, that was from the midnight release of Sunset Overdrive. Great game. Check it out if you missed it. I love that one. Uh, that's a Beer Jones Soda, or it might not be a beer, but it was for Elsewire uh, at E3 last year. Uh, winner's Dinners, that has to do with the PUBG thing from Xbox. They gave me actually like a bunch of different sauces. I don't even think I've finished two of them yet. So three different sauce things and had all the winner winners, chickens, dinners, and stuff like that. It was a big promotion thing they were doing. Uh, Call of Duty Ghosts bracelet I just have. Uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider kind of uh, candle. So that's from, you know, a Rise of the Tomb Raider event. I got flown out to Montreal prior to release to play it and do some stuff. That's also where the the giant leopard comes from, which you can see at the top. So these are just kind of cases. I guess I should be describing it more from like an audio perspective. But I think I kind of paint a picture. The Xbox mug, going back to that giant silver shiny chalice. Rubber duckies are rubber ducky, and then the other things are like, eh, you can't really describe them too well. Uh, then we got Moss, which is like a mouse little sword from the VR game Moss. Uh, really lovely, got that from E3. Two Disney Infinity figures. Uh, Ahsoka and Jack Skeleton, which I think I bought both of these. I don't think they were. Maybe the Ahsoka was given to me from Disney for a review thing. It's been a long time. Uh, then we got our Microsoft uh, mascot, the Ninja Cat, on top of the dinosaur T-Rex with the claw things. Uh, Stay Puffs. Uh, the Stay Puffs are actually my sister's. I have one of my own of these, but I have it in a box still because I love the smile that the Stay Puff guy has. So it's a Stay Puff marshmallow. And then the Jackrabbit, which I think is Jazz Jackrabbit or something else, or Bucky O'Hare. I can't quite remember. Uh, Yarny. I made Yarny, so big red kind of yarn guy thing. So I made him for Yarny because I like the game a lot. And then the Halo Shelf uh, Xbox and over the playing cards I'm still missing. Uh, well, I guess not missing, but I need to get rest of the playing cards, I guess, uh, five and reach. I got one, two, three, four. Uh, and then we got the Master Chief there is from Halo 2's uh, pre-order at Future Shop when they existed. My mother got me a couple of those back in the day when I was little, little. Uh, Cortana, I think, was a gift from my pal Lurker. The Dying Light 2 statue, which is really cool, kind of like a standing tall guy with like an axe thing. I don't know why I'm doing visual things. I'm trying to like if you think about it from a perspective of somebody listening just for audio, I'm trying to give context, and for video, I'm also doing that, so it doesn't make sense. But Giant Dying Light statue, they gave that away at uh, E3 last year for the Dying Light presentation. I've seen Dying Light twice at E3. Maybe no, no, we're not going this year. But yeah. So then at the top, we got a little Ewok, and then he's standing in a COG display that is part of the limited edition for Gears 2. Then we have a Ghostbusters Playmobil set. So Playmobil sent me that because I reviewed it, and I'm supposed to be getting the Scooby-Doo.
do play mobile but i haven't seen that arrive yet so i'll have to email them again but i mean the whole situation right now everything's like up in the air right uh then we got the little creature can't quite recall its name from the outer worlds uh which is obviously was an e3 and a game that released uh for xbox then we got the RuneScape Menophon's cat. So they sent me like a giant pyramid. I think I have an unboxing of it on the channel. I don't know. Really cool. And then a little link I've had since I was little. I used to take them on all my trips whenever I would go somewhere. So that was kind of cool. So we're going to quickly show off uh, my other two shelves in a kind of display and talk thing. So I hope you uh, enjoy that. So this is what I dub basically my Minecraft shelf now with the Assassin's Creed guy. So we'll start here, uh, we got the sea turtle, we've got the pigs. I think one of them is like the old version and the new version or one of them is a baby pig, the oslet, which is one of the better stuffed ones. Then we've got a sheep and then we've got a special Minecraft Earth sheep that I think was a limited edition thing, Xbox sent it to me. That is a creature from Black Desert. Uh, I got that from the Black Desert into the Abyss E3 event uh, last year. And then we got a creeper, you got a Minecon Earth badge they kind of sent me. There's my card. Don't worry about trying to play the code, it's already been used. Uh, that was part of my Xbox One X view bundle. And then we got a bunch of little toys that I've gotten either from Microsoft or bought myself. Uh, these are happy socks. Really cool. They're like different sock types. Uh, really cool from Xbox. I got that Chewbacca as a birthday thing. And then the statue we bought for like a few dollars, somewhere cheap uh, a couple of years back, and we just kind of had it sitting there. But the happy socks are really nice, uh, different Minecraft designs. Maybe I'll show them sometime, they're really lovely. So this was my uh, traditional shelf that I used for review backdrops. As you can see, well, if you've seen the older version, I've cleared off a lot of it. We got our Disney Infinity kind of main cool looking characters at the top. Uh, those are Xbox Series X review pamphlets and books. Maybe someday I'll go through them. A uh, little thank you cards on the left there. And then we got our Harvest Moon stuff. So if you go visit Natsumi at E3 as press, they usually give you something cool like the, the chicken there, which is quite valuable, I believe, or was at the time. And the cow and the sheep. And then we got another Hitman uh, kind of rubber ducky. That's from EA Play, the Sims top. And I think that's an unopened can of overcharge to drink someday when I want to feel sick, but enjoy the thrill. Cause it's actually a really good drink. Uh, bigger promotion, uh, 4k player, ready player one picture of me giving an award at, uh, I think that was, I can't remember the game. Uh, stronghold, late strongholds. And that's, uh, from the box at, uh, you know, the crates, they give out loot crates. And then we got another one of the uh, ninja mascot for Microsoft. And we got all our Lego Dimensions figures. Most of them I got to review. Some of them I bought. A uh, really cool collection, I think. I absolutely adored the game, and I kind of feel like I missed out. By them not releasing that third uh, kind of season in the third year of content, which would have been really cool. See if these playing cards, uh, Microsoft sent that, and then my Call of Duty Elite Pass thing that I got uh, with Modern Warfare 3. Sorry, the Battlefront 2 on PS2, yeah. Not in a lot of PlayStation stuff, but then again, PlayStation doesn't really send me gifts, so I don't really buy it that much. Uh, Square Enix sent 
The two figures, obviously, you know, from Life is Strange, very lovely. And then this is a set Microsoft sent me. It's kind of like a cool dynamic one that I thought looked nice in the background. Cogflag from the Gears of War 2, uh, you know, special edition. I think they're World of Warcraft creatures, but there's my, like, uh, Sea of Thieves kind of drawn-up thing. It's really cool. And a Tomb Raider event uh, kind of compass thing. And uh, a little bit of 360 games. But that's it. Cool. Cool. So now I just want to set up the interview here, the first one. So this is the RuneScape Archaeology Update. It's a new one out. Uh, they're very nice. They're great to work with. Uh, Jagex, they're always friendly. And we've got Dave Osborne and Ryan Philpott. And I hope those are set correctly. Hoping. And uh, I hope you enjoy. This one was done on the computer, so the audio should be pretty good. And sorry if I'm a bit loud. And if some of the placement of phrasing and stuff is a bit off, because I have a preset list of interview questions, and then, you know, they kind of expect you to kind of go with the flow, and I was just kind of going with questions, and blah, 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 blah. And then after that, I'm just going to play the two Star Wars interviews, uh, first the special effects, and then the stunts. So hope you enjoyed. Uh, yeah. To start things off, could you briefly describe the archaeology update for those that might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so I can, I can do this. Um, uh, yeah, so um, as Dave just briefly mentioned, then archaeology is um, the latest skill added to RuneScape. Uh, this makes it uh, skill number 28, and it has you uh, out in the field uh, as a player uh, gathering resources and trying to discover artifacts. Um, archaeology at its core is a gathering skill. So similar to your fishing, mining, um, when you're out in the field, you'll find uh, excavation nodes, which you can interact with and make these discoveries. Um, when you discover an artifact, uh, you'll be able to take it away and restore it to back to its former glory. And then as a player, you, you have the decision to make, like, what do you want to do with this artifact? Do you want to give it away um, to a collector, some NPCs that are collecting these items, and in return, they'll reward you? Um, or do you want to hold on to it and find somewhere, you know, in deep in those dig sites where you found it, where it may have a use? Um, but ultimately, this is the core loop of the skill. You'll be uh, continuing to do this throughout all the levels. And as you get higher and uh, level up throughout the skill, you'll gain access to more areas within the dig site uh, where you'll uncover stories um, and things we're calling mysteries, which are basically like little mini quests that happen within the dig sites. And they um, offer rewards in their own right by um, as well as like story rewards um, and yeah as, as you're exploring um, these dig sites you'll be able to uncover things that we've also called relics and relics is essentially a system that we're introducing with archaeology which allows you to have like passive buffs on the player uh, these relics are essentially powerful objects from the past that you've got your hands on and you can harness this this ancient power um, uh yeah. yeah. Great. So hopefully that's a good quick roundup for you. Good 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 opening. Uh what would you say is the core of this expansion or well the aspect that will impact the overall game the most? Um good it's question. question to answer because yeah. it's whether or not um obviously like the training of the skill is what RuneScape is. Like play to train skills, that's a lot of the motivation. So the skill itself will be motivating for a lot of players. But for me, like um, relics, which Brian touched on a little bit there, what they do is they apply a buff that can be beneficial to so many other um, skills or game elements outside of archaeology. So a lot of players are going to be kind of scanning, doing a little shopping list, all the relics that they want, um, and 
working out which ones of the, them to activate on their player at any one time. And these will probably, because they are so powerful, because you can only have so many on at one time, they're probably going to be the thing that attracts the player the most, and they're probably going to shift the meta the most as well. Okay. Uh, this release brings the 28th skill to RuneScape. Could you tell us about the decision behind picking Archaeology as the latest skill, and how players will level it up? Yeah, I think um, a number of question, you know, why why archaeology? And I completely understand why, because um, I think first instincts is that archaeology doesn't sound particularly exciting from just that strap, just that line. But when we started seeing it through the lens of, um, okay, what would a RuneScape version of archaeology be? What would a fantastical, you know, magic-oriented archaeology be? Um, that's when it started getting really exciting for us. We imagined doing kind of really contrary things like um, uh, digging in floating citadels. So effectively, you're digging up. Uh, you know, yeah, digging through the circles of hell, digging through goblin tunnels. Um, it was kind of an interpretation that was true to RuneScape. And once we started seeing it through that lens, it became really exciting. And, you know, we did a lot of survey work when we first decided on this. Skill. And um, you see the appreciation jump as soon as we start describing what we're doing, as opposed to just saying the word archaeology. Um, equally, there's archaeology mechanically. There's so much that we can do with it. Um, we can offer so many strong artifacts we can delve into our storyline more it really kind of offers us something that other skills wouldn't have been able to do okay uh, what's the process behind performing archaeology and where exactly can players head to find some of these hidden secrets of the past um yeah so hopefully um just just i can explain it again if you'd like but a moment ago i explained like the core loop of training the skill um, yep. but the way in which the player um so essentially, actually, if you were to log in on skill release, the player um, ha heads to the dig site, uh, the, which we've now called the Archaeology Guild. So this is the Varrock dig site. Um, and they can partake in the tutorial for the skill. Uh, the tutorial just will explain to you the, the rough idea of how, how archaeology is going to unfold. Um, and then, then we have five dig sites which are scattered across Gillenor, um, so across RuneScape's mainland. Um, and we've kind of put them uh, they, they, where they are is for narrative. Uh, reasons, but they're kind of actually at different corners of uh, of the world, um, and a player is able to go to these dig sites and start, you know, training archaeology by excavating. And as they progress, they'll be able to uh, sorry, as they level up, and they'll be able to progress through this site, uh, finding these secrets that we mentioned. Um, and as you increase in level, you'll also gain access to the other sites. So from the beginning of the game, after the tutorial, you'll only have access to Karadet, which is the first site that's unlocked at level five. Um, and as you progress, um, the Infernal Source unlocks at level 20, and the other sites uh, unlock later levels as well. Okay, so uh, excavating is also an element of this skill. How does this factor into the work of archaeology? Uh, yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, the so the way that this works is uh, you essentially are out at, out at a dig site and you'll be able to find these nodes. Um, and when interacting with these nodes, it, similar to like I mentioned mining, um, you'll use a mattock, which is the archaeology tool, and you'll be finding materials. Uh, these materials are required to restore any artifacts that you discover. And when you make a discovery, uh, you'll be able to take that artifact away and restore it. But the excavation loop is essentially collecting these materials and collecting these artifacts. Great. So we kind of talked about the loot being found. Uh, can you dive into what sort of items, knowledge, and hidden secrets players will generally come across when using archaeology? Yeah, a couple of things um, 
been thinking quite yet is um, unlocking of ancient invention and ancient summoning. So we already have invention and summoning in, in the game, but um, like the Library of Alexandria, knowledge lost over time. And so when players are um, excavating in, in Final Source and Stormguard, they'll be able to uncover the, the knowledge to unlock these elements of the skills. And so what ancient invention is, is um, uh, the ability to make gizmos that, um, if you know RuneScape and you know invention, the players have the ability to make perks on their weapons, which are little buffs that help on, on um, weapons, armors, and tools. We've previously only given them kind of five slots to play around with. Um, but now this, what ancient gizmos do, is they give them nine slots, there's more things to work on, um, more combinations of permutations to unlock there. Um, there's lots of other stuff that comes with ancient invention, but with ancient summoning, um, it's about kind of binding demons to your hand. So where previously you were pouch making in summoning, with this, what you're doing is you are um, traveling to mobs in the game world, you're defeating them, and then in their dying throes, you are um, getting them, you're, you're signing contracts that bind their soul to you. And so you're kind of on that flip of that narrative trope of selling your soul to a demon with kind of binding demons to us. And now they'll fight for you, so hellhounds, ripper demons, um, all of these creatures that players may know are now fighting for you. And um, hopefully that'll be, that'll be have kind of a cool, cool moment for a lot of players who've known these creatures who now get them to fight for them. Cool, exciting. Uh, so I understand the skill will impact the overall narrative and dive into the lore of the game further. I mean, we kind of talked about this a bit. Could you tell us, you know, the overall kind of just setup for this and kind of how the story unfolds as you're working through the skill? Yeah, we've we, um, just yesterday we um, launched an event of the game that saw um, uh, one of our gods, Saros, interacting with a monolith within our dig zone. Um, players have come into the game and seen this. They weren't expecting it. They were surprised. But that really is kicking off a story arc that's going to go all the way you know, through archaeology and onto Elder God Wars Dungeon, one of the updates we have in that half of the year. Um, Elder God Wars Dungeon is um, where the, the titans that created this world have come together to um, fight for something. We're being a little bit cagey about what that is. And so what this is really doing is, is, is starting the, the starting pistol that gets that narrative going. Um, and archaeology um, takes that a little bit further, but also has individual stories within it as well. Each of the dig sites effectively represents a mystery to be solved. Um, and you'll go in there and find out about characters and what got them to this point. So, for example, Everlightis, um was once a, a lighthouse that was a home for um, the Iceen, a race of angel creatures. You get to find out what happened to them, why they're no longer there anymore. So it's a mystery to be solved. Um, and you'll find out when you once you have completed the entirety of that dig site. So they're both pocket stories in the individual dig sites, but there's also no bracket story that propels forward to Elder God Wars Dungeon. Great. Uh, so what part of archaeology do you feel will surprise players the most? Dave, do you have a... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're always kind of running this tightrope of... Uh, like Players know a lot of archaeology. We've done a lot of videos about it. We've talked a lot... Um, about it but there are some things we've kept in our back pocket like we had we determinedly not surprised uh, revealed that information um and um stormguard citadel i think is probably the biggest surprise the players will get they know that there are cloud citadels in the sky but there are um means of navigation and how and exploring that are all very much a surprise um and we just want to leave that to players and a lot of the easter eggs are, are hidden too um, and our players don't know a lot about what relics are there so uh, some of them will be super powerful and, 
Yeah, and I reckon as well that there is a quite big surprise um, in some of the uh, finale, uh, sorry, the final sort of on the seat. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, at these dig sites, uh, when you progress through and you're unlocking the story and figuring out what's going on, I think the the bombshell, like at the end of some of these, is going to be a surprise to some players. Um, those that have more, uh, a lot more understanding of how these gods work before for, for our more lore adept players as well. Um, so that that's going to be super interesting to see. Uh, there's quite a few of those. There's being five dig sites. There's uh, some interesting stories there that I think is going to be a surprise. Okay. Uh, when working on this content, were there any main inspirations for it or was any uh, interesting research done in preparation? Uh, we're all swapping movies, you know, at the start of archaeology. There's something you can't avoid. Like, um, you know, obviously Indiana Jones and your Tomb Raiders and the Mummy, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but um, there's also a lot of real-world inspiration in some of the archaeology architecture that we've used and um, some of the myths that we've explored. But uh, we've always tried our best to um, flip those on their heads a little bit, not, try, not, not necessarily do what players expect. I think if you go to places like Warforge and um, Stormguard, you'll see that we haven't necessarily relied on uh, family, uh, familiar tropes. There's there's some new stuff in there. Okay. Uh, lastly, I would like to leave a spot for you guys to say something or go over anything I might have missed during the interview. Uh, yeah. Just uh, just wanted to you know for um, just explain that this skill is is ultimately like we designed it to be for everyone, um, which means that it's available to new players. Uh, if you just start playing RuneScape, you'll be able to come in and just go and try archaeology if you want to. Um, and we built it in such a way that as a new player coming into this, you'd be able to you know, follow the story with the small bits that we give you um, without any complications, as well as if you're an active player who's been playing for a long period of time. If you went through the skill, the new bits of lore that you're getting, you'll be able to sort of uh, piece those pieces of the puzzle together. You'll realize that, oh, this quest that you did before, something you found out then links to this. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be an amazing, uh, skill and I can't wait to, uh, well, release it and get to play it myself. So I'd like a little nod to, um, just saying it's, it's a very social skill as well. Like if you're wondering whether or not to come to RuneScape or you've got a friend who's playing RuneScape, um, like it is really worth playing together with other players because the fights are all communal. There's going to be everybody playing through the same content as you, and they're all going to be looking for materials that you probably have. Um, we were just talking about Animal Crossing and how we're trying to, you know, <laughs> and things like that. It's, you know, it's, it's got that similar feeling. People will have what you want, and that's really community around archaeology. I'm expecting these new digs in the game. Uh, a staple I do in all my interviews in order to start things off is ask that you tell us a bit about yourself and the connection you have to Star Wars, the Rise of Skywalker. Okay, so my name is Neil Scanlon, and um, I um, I sort of began my career in stop motion. I was a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen. I grew up with Ray Harryhausen's work, and then uh, became obviously uh, you know completely taken by the work that ILM did on the original Star Wars films. That that became a huge inspiration to me. So uh, you know, my career path led me from stop motion into animatronics because uh, at the time animatronics was the emerging technology. Uh, and then eventually, as we go through the whole technological curve, it brings us to, you know, the digital era. And at that point, uh, you know, we start to transition between uh, fully practical elements to 
you know, uh, CG and, and a combination of those, which eventually drew me to, or a sense was to be approached by Kathleen and JJ when they came to start to look at the Star Wars films because practical effects have always been a, 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 a really important ingredient in the world that I think George set up. And so I was fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time uh, uh, to uh, receive that phone call. Great. Uh, so I understand you were noted as the uh, SFX supervisor for the film. For those unfamiliar with the role, could you tell us a bit about what your job entails and an element of that role you particularly enjoy performing? Okay, yeah. So um, so my, my role really is to uh, work uh, in the very early stages of pre-production, uh, along with the director and, and um, production-based team, to um, really, I think, get to understand what the, 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 the desire is. From the, my, my job is to try and get inside the director's head and understand what the director is trying to articulate. If he can't or she can't completely articulate, the, the idea they might have is for me to try and understand that and to, to almost get under their skin a little bit. And then it's then my responsibility, in a sense, to put a team of people together and to, in a sense, just guide those people in in in, in helping them then realise the director's you know uh, their ambitions. And so that's from right from the beginning of concepting when we're trying to you know visualise this character or creature or droid through to how we execute them, what they look like, and how we're going to operate them. Um, and then eventually, right the way through to their performance, and, and, and obviously take, going on to the set and, and actually shooting them for real. So my job is one which is one I consider to be phenomenally lucky, in that I get to sort of work, uh, you know, right the way through the creative process with this, you know, my amazing team of people that come from all walks of life. And, you know, to me, that is that is essentially the job that I do and in its whole is what I particularly like I mean, there is not one element of that role that I prefer any any other it's the total journey I often liken myself to being almost like a bus driver in that I have this bus full of incredibly brilliant people and I've just got to make sure that we we follow the road map and we don't take a wrong turn um, and so yeah absolutely what a wonderful job Practical effects of the movie. Is there a particular scene or setup within the Rise of Skywalker that might surprise you to know that it's a real physical entity? Um, let me have a think. I mean, there was, there were um, probably not one that hasn't hopefully already been, you know, seen by the fans in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, the. the, the, the there's a lot of characters that make their way in the background and, and people look like, for instance, there's a, a droid that is in um, in the, the Aki Aki village where they run uh, to the speeders, which is where Ray and uh, Poe and Finn run to the speeders. And there's this enormous droid that is, that is right next to the speeders and uh, it sort of has a suction cone cone at the front of it. Uh, it might be a surprise to people to know that we actually built that for real. Uh, the very high section was added added uh, later digitally, but actually the legs right the way up to the base, which was nearly 20 feet tall by about 20, 30 feet long by about 15 feet wide, all of that was built as a practical puppet that we took to Jordan and we shot in, in, uh, in, in the actual location in Jordan. So it's some of those things I think that people will just sort of go, oh, they were CG, uh, you know, that was CG or 
there's some little characters there are two little characters that have little ears and their eyes are actually inside their ears and it's a little throwaway typical Star Wars scene where the Millennium Falcon does a fly through through the valley through uh, uh, um, through Jordan uh, through the actual location and they kind of just pick up their ears as it were and they watch the little you know they watch the Millennium Falcon go through again they were actually little animatronic puppets that we took you know dug them into the sand on the edge of a sort of rock face and and performed that little moment and shot it live so I think it's those things that may may hopefully be a little bit of a surprise when people would maybe automatically think oh what they would just be CG and um, hopefully we go you know the extra mile to make sure that uh, uh, we get them in the real light and, and, and for a real moment yeah do you ever find it challenging to bridge elements of physical creations with those that are digital effects added in afterwards? I mean, I imagine there's a lot of visualizing how the practical will look, and then, you know, it's kind of different thinking about it with those digital elements added on afterwards. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things, obviously, that we have... Uh, is, a is, a, is a sort of working relationship and a family relationship that comes from, again from George and ILM and so you know right from the very beginning the relationship between what we were going to try and do practically and how we would integrate that and how we would work alongside uh, you know the digital side was, was always incredibly uh, close because the visual effects supervisor such as Roger Guyot you know would, would be there all the time and we would just have these discussions and so it's, it's I think one of the things that made ILM, one of the greatest visual effects houses in the world, uh, you know, and, and, and you know why why it sits so historically where it does is the fact that even in the original uh, Star Wars films, it was that unique blend of what one might consider to be old old effects techniques uh, married in with these new techniques like motion control cameras and the dice reflex and all of those sort of things. So it was the use of, of, of traditional techniques mixed with the very latest techniques that gave Star Wars, I think, its incredible visual. And so what we try to do on these uh, on the films now is to try and hold on to that as being you know, one of the heartbeats of, of, of what the, the, the fans love about Star Wars and to try and do things, uh, you know, not always do everything practical, but try to achieve a certain amount of practical and then, look, and then look to see how we can either enhance that further using digital effects or be assisted by digital as far as, say, things like puppeteer removal and all of those things are concerned. And often when you see a digital character, we will have already constructed that as a real-world maquette, or a photorealistic maquette as we call it, which obviously means that the digital people can then use that as their reference point, and hopefully that helps keep the integration so close that you don't really know when you are watching or not watching a particular transition from practical to digital. Okay, thank you. Uh, Star Wars is a massive deal to so many. What's it like to feel, or what's it feel like to be part of the creative force behind making these stories come to life on the big screen? Um, I think if I look at my career and I look at the sort of career highs that I have, uh, you know, personal moments that I look at, and personal films that I have a particular kind of affection for, um, you know, they, they are dotted throughout your career and they may be small, they may be large, it may be a commercial or it may be a feature film. But I think in many ways to have found, certainly, uh, dare I say, this late in, in, in life for me, you know, towards the tail end of, of my career to some extent, one might say, uh, to be part of uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the Star Wars, you know, in a sense, the reboot or the relaunch or the continuation of the Star Wars world, um, 
I couldn't have asked for more. I mean, it's just it's just an absolute gift, and it has has reinvigorated, uh, um, you know. Not only my career, but I think my crew's career, our ambitions, and our aspirations for what we want to do in a way that I don't think many other film projects could have done. So, uh, you know, I'm incredibly lucky, and I am incredibly proud to be where we are right now. Um, I, I just think I'm blessed, absolutely blessed. Yeah. Great. Uh, so I see you've worked on a number of Star Wars films, uh, you know, within the new releases. Uh, would, is it a series you'd like to continue working on in the future, assuming there are more spin-offs? And with that, um, you know, is there anything strange or different you'd like to do in those hypothetical future movies? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, absolutely, would wish to continue. Uh, I think that um, uh, you know, um, the Star Wars world, as I say, is a world in which you are already invited to, in in a sense, because of again what George set up. So, um, I find any, you know, I find this uh, this. The, the, the films are incredibly exciting places to be to to explore, as I say, your ambitions or new ideas or new technologies. And I, I think that you know when we look at something like um, you know Maz, who was practical uh, in uh, Rise of Skywalker as against her digital counterpart previously, you know you begin to look at sort of areas where we can start not only to push the practical effects and take them uh, to to maybe a place that audiences haven't seen before but also that marriage is a, 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 which is still in its infancy as far as I'm concerned uh, in my opinion that is still in its infancy which is that match between uh, the digital medium and the practical medium which seems to have all sort of again almost endless possibilities and I I, I am you know I love being part of the Star Wars I, 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 I feel we're a family and I feel that con continuity of creativity is something that's very very difficult to find in in any other film most films come together for a very short period of time and you know great creativity takes place but then it then it disbands and and, and disperses whereas within within the star wars world one feels that one can have uh, some form of kind of long-term projection of what you might want to do so I'm more than happy and would and, 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 and look forward to being hopefully involved with more Star Wars films. Um, but at the same time, obviously, you know, there are other projects that may come along that, that, that uh, you know, also have a kind of desire to try and uh, do a similar thing, and, and they would be interesting too. Um, so it's just, you know, I find that to be just an exciting possibility uh, in what is what is primarily such a technological age in which we live in. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming up on 15 minutes if you want to do last question. Uh, okay, yep. Uh, lastly, I would like to give you the uh, No, not really. It's a tremendous interview. Thank you so much. Incredibly intelligent questions, and, 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 and thank you for giving me the time. Um, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think that, um, as I say, it's, um, you know, I think it's, that's, you know, the, the, to me, it's very interesting times at the moment when I look at kind of the work that's been done. Uh, you know, it certainly was a, the visual effects bake-off this year, and you look at the kind of level of visual effects now, it is a very interesting time that we're moving into, and I think that we're beginning to see we are absolutely on the cusp of a period in which visual effects become so, uh, uh, so wholesome in the process of filmmaking that I wonder if the category visual effects will stay as a category in its own right uh, or, because almost when you start 
too much part of the filmmaking that one wonders if they won't just become sort of, you know, best picture or most kids sort of, you know, it's incredible to see the Irishman and, you know, uh, uh, see the work of the, the, the Lion King and all of these things which are really, you know, on the cusp of some phenomenal work that is, that is around the corner and, and an exciting sort of almost independent filmmaking process. Certainly a process that I know that George Lucas mentioned way, way back was one of his kind of visions for the future and I think we're not too far away from it. So uh, it's amazing. Yeah, very exciting times. Sometimes for one where you go back and forth can 
take up to 12 weeks. Then, um, and then when, when we're finally settled, then we'll start teaching the actors it. So the process of all of that, and that's just the actors side of it. Like then, then we want to rehearse when there's explosions or when there's, there's other kills and stormtroopers being attacked and talking about stormtroopers would uh, would be uh, when the stormtroopers, the red troopers and the stormtroopers fight in the levels at the end. The choreography of all that entailed uh, with the wire work and the explosions and working with SFX and costume and the um, the art department with the construction of the set alone. So um, it's it's not sort of just rocking up on set and shooting great action. Um, the, the sort of in-depth rehearsals and conceptual design of it all is all done maybe six to nine months prior to it all. Really, a little bit boring, really, to talk about, but it was really interesting. 
doing it where they're not thinking about choreography, they are, they can now think about their character and the choreography comes very natural. Daisy would do it in an hour. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. It, it, it's like a stick. She got a photographic memory for choreography. She, yeah, she was absolutely brilliant. Um, it's very hard nowadays to do something different. Um, it, it, there was a few things we did just MD stunts, uh, with stormtroopers um, just getting exploded and they hit the ground. Because we had jet troopers, uh, well, one of our uh, one of the gags that we did most was when a jet jet trooper hit the ground and he basically he is killed. The hit to the ground kills him. But his um, his jetpack is still firing a little bit. So um, you see, it was all real. Uh, the trooper came down, um, and then it was a combined of visual effects where it's a trooper, and then he goes uh, in blast the pump, and then he hits the ground along the sand. But his um, his jetpack keeps firing them off a little bit. So it was quite interesting when we were doing that. I mean, it's such a throwaway gag, really. Like 